Well, in our age, attempts to discredit Christianity are as strong as ever. We live in the age of the Enlightenment, the age of the self, where scientific thinking is enthroned, where tradition, where history are thrown to the side. We live in the age where rationality is king, where scientific evidence is queen, and where all of its investigations conclude that Christianity is irrational, that its basis is is blind faith, that it has no supporting evidence at all. And the only obvious implication of all that is to conclude that God is dead and to get rid of that superstition called Christianity once and for all. Well, that's the thinking of many groups, but in particular that of the new atheists. You may have heard of some of them before. Listen to some of these quotes. Uh, Richard Dawkins, uh, he says, Faith is the great cop-out, the great excuse to evade the need to think and evaluate evidence. Faith is belief in spite of, even perhaps because of, the lack of evidence. Christopher Hitchens just takes it one step further. What can be asserted without proof can be dismissed without proof. Now all these attacks, they're they're nothing new. Uh, Voltaire said much earlier, nothing can be more contrary to religion and the clergy than reason and common sense. Or even back to the days of the Roman Empire that we're looking at today, the governor Pliny said Christianity was a deadly superstition. And I think at the heart of it all, the touchstone issue is the resurrection from the dead. I mean, how could one rationally believe that Jesus was raised from the dead? I mean, have we ever seen anyone being raised from the dead? Uh, Perhaps you've had people try to shake your faith like that at work or at at college uh, to discredit you, to tell you that you're a fool for believing in some man who rose from the dead 2,000 years ago. Well, these attacks are nothing new. Back in Paul's day, it was the same. And on this occasion, the resurrection was on trial before the greatest kings and rulers of his day. This was a landmark trial. And what would be the result? Well, we'll see today. Well, over the last few chapters, tension has been rising in this book as Paul has been the subject of trial after trial. At first he was lynched by an angry mob in the temple and they tried to to kill him at that time, but he was saved by the tribune. Uh, He was made to to stand before the Jewish Jewish council, which soon was in uproar when Paul said that Jesus was raised from the dead. Uh, Finally, he was was whisked away to to Caesarea under heavy guard to be brought before the Roman uh, governor, Felix. Uh, The Jews came with their best lawyers to to accuse him, to seek for his execution. And Felix thought that he was not guilty, but he still didn't release him. He he left him in prison for another two years. And so the case goes on and on until finally Felix is succeeded by the new governor, Porcius Festus. The tension is rising and it's all heading to its climax. So chapter 25 brings us in, it it brings all the main characters back again 
and it sets the stage for a climactic decision in chapter 26. So hold on to your seats. It's going to be an exciting ride. So we pick up the story first, so chapter 25 and verse 1. Why don't you turn there with me? Chapter 25, verse 1. And the Jewish leaders come back into the fray. Now three days after Festus had arrived in the province, he went up to Jerusalem from Caesarea. And the chief priests and the principal men of the Jews laid out their case against Paul. And they urged him, asking as a favour against Paul that he summon him to Jerusalem because they were planning an ambush to kill him on the way. Can you believe it? Uh, even after two years in prison, the Jews are still trying to kill Paul. Uh, and they still haven't given up on their, their silly plan in the beginning to ambush him and kill him. That didn't work the first time. Obviously for them, this is no ordinary case. Paul is no ordinary prisoner. In, in their eyes, Paul stands for something. He stands for something that must be squashed. But like Felix, Festus doesn't give in quite so easily to what they want. Verse 4. Festus replied that Paul was being kept at Caesarea and that he himself intended to go there shortly. So, said he, let the men of authority among you go down with me and if there is anything wrong about the man, let them bring charges against him. Two years earlier, Felix had failed to release Paul when he thought that he was not guilty. So now, the, Paul's whole case is reopened again. And the trial begins there in verse 6. This time, the second trial before Felix, Festus, sorry, before Festus. Verse 6. After Festus had stayed among them not more than eight or ten days, he went down to Caesarea. And the next day he took his seat on the tribunal and ordered Paul to be brought. When he had arrived, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him, bringing many and serious charges against him that they could not prove. Paul argued in his defence, neither against the law of the Jews, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar, have I committed any offence. Well, the second trial goes much like the first one. Uh, the charges are just the same, or, or maybe even a bit more exaggerated this time. Uh, they accuse him of breaking the, breaking the Jewish law, uh, defiling the temple, uh, disturbing the, the empire, disturbing the peace. And, and just like two years earlier, they still don't have a scrap of evidence to prove anything. Paul's got it easy. He doesn't need to do anything except deny the charges one at a time. The, the trial should be over before it even begun. There's no evidence the case should be thrown out of court. Except that Festus sees this as an opportunity to secure his new position as governor. Now verse 9, Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Do you wish to go up to Jerusalem and there be tried on these charges before me? Now you can see the thinking of this guy, right? He's thinking, oh, wouldn't it be great PA just to help the Jews? Uh, you know, I've just got this new position. be really good to keep them happy. And, and it wouldn't breach justice if we just moved the trial, you know, a few hundred kilometres down the road and, and had it in Jerusalem. Look, just like, just like Pilate before him, he's thinking, let's keep the people happy rather than worry too much about the right thing to do. Well, Paul is, is rightly not that impressed, did you notice? 
verse 10. Paul said, I am standing before Caesar's tribunal where I ought to be tried. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as you yourself know very well. If then I am a wrongdoer and have committed anything for which I deserve to die, I do not seek to escape death. But if there is nothing to their charges against me, no one can give me up to them. I appeal to Caesar. See, if he's not going to get a fair trial in Caesarea, then what's the point in going to Jerusalem? What, what hope has he got there? Now, Paul's not after any special treatment here, though. Uh, if he's guilty, he, he's prepared to suffer for it. But Paul knows his innocence. And so backed into the corner, he, he does the only thing, that the only way out that it was really available to him. He appeals to Caesar. Now, the ability to appeal to Caesar was, was one of the most ancient Roman rights of Roman citizens. Uh, it came right back to the, the foundation of the Roman Empire in 509 BC. It was there to, to safeguard justice, to, to avoid coercion and, and unjust punishment. A, a prisoner could appeal to Caesar and their case would be taken to go directly to Caesar himself. Now, this was no small deal. That once someone appealed to Caesar, there was no other way out. The only way you could be freed was if Caesar himself freed you. This was a big decision by Paul. But perhaps he's thinking again. Here is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to preach the gospel before the emperor. And so he goes for it. Festus happily agrees, did you notice? Verse 12. To Caesar you have appealed, to Caesar you shall go. Maybe finally Festus can get this silly case off his hands. Except that Festus still has one more problem. What exactly would he write to the emperor about Paul's crime? Uh, he hadn't exactly broken any laws. He, I mean, he hadn't actually done anything wrong. So what, what could he actually say to, to the emperor? doesn't make any sense. Well, before he gets too worried, he's lucky that he gets a visit from some important people. Uh, King Agrippa and his sister Bernice turn up on the scene. They're there to, to congratulate him, I guess, on his new appointment. See verse 13. Now when some days passed, Agrippa the king and Bernice arrived at Caesarea and greeted Festus. Now let me tell you about these two. Uh, Herod Agrippa II uh, was a king of a of a client kingdom up in the northeast uh, from Caesarea. Uh, now Bernice was his sister, uh, but they weren't married. Uh, Bernice married the other brother, who was now dead. But Agrippa was well known as, as an expert in all of the Jewish religious law. It, it, it was really a lucky thing for Festus. Festus hopes that he might be able to give him some help, somehow help him to know how to draft his report to the emperor. And so he tells him about the prisoner Paul in verse 14 to 18. And he also tells what he thinks about the case. See verse 18, he thinks there is no charge in his case. There is no charge in his case. Festus thinks that according to the Roman law, 
Paul has done nothing wrong. Rather, this whole thing is about, verse 19, certain points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a certain Jesus who was dead, but whom Paul asserted to be alive. I think Festus is actually really smart because Festus recognises what is the real issue in this whole trial business. It is Paul's insistence on the resurrection of Christ. And he's absolutely right that that has been the issue the whole way along. It was before the the Sanhedrin that that Paul had cried out, Uh, it is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial. When he was taken before Felix, he'd used the very same words. It is with respect to the hope and the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial. The real issue in Paul's case is the resurrection of Christ. But what was Festus to do? How could he write to the emperor? Believing someone was raised from the dead was not a crime. It was not a breach of Roman law. And so verse 20, he's at a loss how to investigate these questions. Lucky Agrippa is all too happy to help. Verse 22. Agrippa said to Festus, I would like to hear the man myself. Tomorrow, said he, you will hear him. And so the stage is set for the climax of the book of Acts. Paul's third and final trial, this time before a king. King Agrippa. The trial kicks off in verse 23. On the next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and they entered the audience hall with the military tribunes and the prominent men of the city. Then at the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. See, this is a, is a massive occasion. And the king comes in with, with all of his pomp and, and grandeur and splendour and he has all of his distinguished guests with him. All the military leaders are there. All the prominent men of the city are there. This is a big deal, this case. Everyone important is there. And then Paul comes in, bound in chains. The, the contrast could hardly be greater and neither the irony. Paul didn't need such pomp and ceremony to show his greatness. Well, Festus introduces the trial. Verse 24. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man about whom the whole Jewish people petitioned me, both in Jerusalem and here, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. But I found that he had done nothing deserving death. And as he himself appealed to the emperor, I decided to go ahead and send him. But I have nothing definite to write to my lord about him. Therefore I have brought him before you all, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that after we have examined him, I may have something to write. For it seems to me unreasonable in sending a prisoner not to indicate the charges against him. See, Festus is in a very difficult position He is sending an innocent man to the emperor of the Roman Empire. That's really not going to look good for him. It's going to look a bit dumb. Except that there's there's no substance to the charges. Agrippa might help him. 
So Paul is given yet one more opportunity to defend the gospel, to defend the resurrection. So he begins, chapter 26 and verse 1. Agrippa said to Paul, You have permission to speak for yourself. Then Paul stretched out his hand and made his defence. I consider myself fortunate that it is before you, King Agrippa, I am going to make my defence today against all the accusations of the Jews, especially because you are familiar with all the customs and controversies of the Jews. Therefore I beg you to listen to me patiently. Well, as normal practice, uh, Paul begins by addressing the chair. But notice this time he doesn't promise to be brief. He hopes that that Agrippa is going to be interested enough to, to hear him at length. And so he goes right back to the beginning. He goes right back to when he was a child and he outlines his, his hope in the resurrection. Verse 4. My manner of life from my youth, spent from the beginning among my own nation and in Jerusalem, is known by all the Jews. They have known for a long time, if they are willing to testify, that according to the strictest party of our religion, I have lived as a Pharisee. And now I stand here on trial because of my hope in the promise made by God to our fathers, to which our twelve tribes hope to attain, as they earnestly worship night and day. And for this hope I am accused by Jews, O King. Why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? Now Paul's defence here is to show that he is a devout Jew. He's not a lawbreaker. And so he goes right back to his life as a Pharisee. He belonged to one of the strictest sects of the Jewish faith. And it went without saying that as a faithful Pharisee, that he believed in the resurrection of the dead. That Paul was no Sadducee. He believed the promises of the Old Testament. He believed the promises that the restoration of God's people would only happen at, at the resurrection on the last day. He believed passages like Daniel 12. Have a look at Daniel 12 on the screen. At that time your people shall be delivered. Everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. So Paul points out the absurdity of his trial to Agrippa. That Paul was being prosecuted for proclaiming the fulfilment of these promises in the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he was being accused by people who believed in the resurrection for believing in the resurrection. I mean, why should the Jews think it strange that God might actually fulfil his promises? That he might actually honour their hope by raising Jesus, the Messiah, from the dead? It's a simple point, isn't it? And yet it continues to speak to us today, doesn't it? See, one of the greatest sticking points for Christianity is the, is the resurrection of Jesus. Many doubt it. They categorically reject it. They think it is unscientific just because they haven't seen anyone rise from the dead before. But a conclusion like that could only be valid for someone who had rejected God in the first place. See, because if there is a God, then by definition 
God can do anything. I mean, God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. And if God is powerful enough to create the world by a word, surely it wouldn't be absurd to think that God could give new life again. And it wasn't only that. God had actually promised that in the Old Testament long ago, in the Old Testament. The thing is though, Paul is not arguing some mere hypothetical possibility here. He argues that it actually happened, that it happened with Jesus. He was raised from the dead. But why was Paul so sure? How did Paul know anyway? Well, it's not as if Paul didn't understand where his opponents were coming from. He once stood just where they were, persecuting Christians, taking them to court, seeking to put them to death. He recalls that in verse 9. I myself was convinced that I ought to do many things in opposing the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And I did so in Jerusalem. I not only locked up many of the saints in prison, after receiving authority from the chief priests. But when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. And I punished them often in all the synagogues and tried to make them blaspheme. And in raging fury against them, I persecuted them, even to foreign cities. Like his opponents, Paul himself had had done his best to uproot this, this viral weed that was spreading through the Roman Empire, this weed called Christianity. But for Paul, everything had changed. One fateful day when on the journey to Damascus, where he met the risen Lord Jesus for himself. Verse 12. In this connection, I I journeyed to Damascus with the authority and commission of the high priest. At midday, O king, I saw on the way a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, that shone around me and those who journeyed with me. And when we had all fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew language, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And I said, Who are you, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Paul learnt a very important lesson that day. A lesson that those in the audience needed to learn as well. The Christians were right. Jesus was alive. And that gave Paul a big problem. So you, you can't easily overcome the enthroned, risen king of the universe. That's what Paul was trying to do. From that day on, Paul's life would never be the same. From that day on, Jesus was his Lord. From that day on, he had a mission to fulfil, to proclaim the Lord Jesus, to be a witness of the gospel to all the nations. He got that commission from Jesus himself. Verse 16, Jesus says to him, Rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those which I will appear to you delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles to whom I am sending you, to open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Paul's ministry was all about bringing light to the nations. And in the light of the the Old Testament, that was very, very significant. See, Paul's commissioning here echoes the words that were spoken to the suffering servant in Isaiah. Uh, We read about that in our Old Testament reading from Isaiah 49. But just listen to the similarity. Isaiah 49 verse 6. God says, It is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Many of us know that that passage is is fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the suffering servant. He is the one who would who would die and, and rise again so that our sins could be forgiven and, and that could be for all nations. But there's more to it than that. See what it's saying here? It's saying that though Jesus is the servant, Paul was actually called to continue the work of the servant by bringing the gospel to all the nations who put their faith in Jesus. This was the message that God had planned all along. If you are here today as a non-Christian, this is the message for you because this is the message for all of the nations that you can turn from darkness to light, that you can be moved from the power of Satan to God, that you can have your sins forgiven that you can be washed clean completely, that you can have a place with all of God's people who have put their faith in Jesus. If you are here today as a non-Christian, this message is for you. It is for all nations, for Australians, for Malaysians, for everyone, everyone from every place. And it's even for King Agrippa. So the Apostle Paul moves on to try and evangelise him as well. Verse 19. Therefore, therefore, O King Agrippa, I was not obedient, disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance, For this reason the Jews seized me in the temple and tried to kill me. See, on that day that that Paul met Jesus on the road to Damascus, he repented. He turned his life around. His life would never be the same. He turned away from his old life of persecuting Christians, of, of going against Jesus. And he sought to be obedient to his new master to follow Jesus. And from that day on, he calls people to do the same. And it's the same for us here today. No matter what place we are from, we are called upon to repent, to turn back to Jesus, to turn away from our old life. But Paul's point says more than that. He says, not only should we repent and turn back to God, but our lives should be radically transformed by this gospel message. So we don't merely pass from death to life. 
but we come under the rule of a new king, the Lord Jesus Christ. We are called to obey him. That is Paul's message for great or for small, for servant or for king. So Paul concludes in verse 22. To this day I've had the help that comes from God and so I stand here testifying both to small and great, saying nothing but what the prophets and Moses said would come to pass, that the Christ must suffer and that by being the first to rise from the dead, he would proclaim light both to our people and to the Gentiles. Over 20 years after his conversion, with the help of God, Paul continues to proclaim this gospel message. He tries to proclaim this message to this whole crowd of distinguished guests before him. Now, wouldn't it be wonderful to make Paul's mission our own, to make it our mission to proclaim Christ to, to great and small alike, to, to not shrink back, to not give up, but to continue all our lives seeking to bring the light of salvation to everyone around us. Paul ends where he began, with the death and resurrection of Jesus. And he says this is the fulfilment of all that God ever promised. But Festus can take no more of this crazy talk. Verse 24. As he was saying these things in his defence, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, you are out of your mind. Your great learning is driving you out of your mind. Festus has been festering and he can fester no longer. Enough of this unsupported philosophical rubbish. Dead people don't rise. Be quiet. But listen to Paul's reply. Verse 25. Paul said, I am not out of my mind, most excellent Festus, but I am speaking true and rational words. Hear the reply of Paul to atheists who reject Christianity as irrational and without any basis. Paul says, I am speaking true and rational words. In philosophy, the the test of true knowledge is that it must have both coherence and correspondence. That is, it must be both rationally sound and it must agree with reality. Christianity has both of those things. So don't be rocked by those who who level their attacks against the Christian faith. The Christian faith is perfectly rational. It, It makes perfect sense that God could raise someone from the dead and that he would want to. And the Christian faith is true. It it corresponds to reality, to to the empty tomb, to the appearance of of Christ to the disciples, to to the explosive spread of, of the gospel throughout the Roman Empire, to the persistent proclamation of the gospel by the Apostle Paul. But it's not just that that Christianity is is philosophically sound. Paul says it it has the support of history too. Have a look at verse 26. For the king knows about these things 
and to him I speak boldly, for I am persuaded that none of these things has escaped his notice, for this has not been done in a corner. See, the events of, of Jesus' death and resurrection didn't happen in the, in the middle of some kampung. It didn't happen in the middle of some oil plantation, in the middle of nowhere. It happened in the Roman Empire, under the very supervision of the Roman governors. The facts could be easily and plainly checked. The fact that today we are still talking about this Jesus, a criminal who was executed, is testimony enough to the fact that something extraordinary happened at that point in history, a resurrection. Christianity is rational. It is true. It is historical. And it's in complete agreement to all that God had promised through the prophets. And so Paul turns to Agrippa and he says, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you believe. Paul calls on him to make a response. Make a personal response. Believe. Believe. And maybe that's you today. Do you believe all that Paul has said? Who is really on trial in this trial? Is it Paul? Or is it his audience? Verse 28. Agrippa said to Paul, In a short time would you persuade me to be a Christian? And Paul said, Whether short or long, I would to God that not only you, but also all who hear me this day, might become such as I am, except for these chains. Well, Agrippa knows what's happening. He's not going to become a Christian so easily, but what about the boldness of Paul? He just won't give up. It's like one of those energizer bunnies that just keeps on going. Do you see the, the sincerity of the Apostle Paul? He really believed what he was talking about. He wanted everybody to be like him including the king, everybody a Christian. That is incredible integrity. And with that exclamation mark at the end, the audience is over. Verse 30. Then the king rose, and the governor and Bernice, and those who were sitting with them, and when they had withdrawn, they said to one another, this man is doing nothing to deserve death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Well, what's the verdict? It's what we expected at the beginning. We already knew it. He's done nothing wrong. He's completely innocent. But he can't be freed. Well, I wonder if like me, by the, by the end of this third trial, you're, you're starting to feel a little bit of deja vu. <laughs> Hasn't this happened before? How is it that a man so, so often declared innocent is still under bondage and headed to Rome as a prisoner? Don't you just get the feeling that we've, we've done that already? We've, we've heard that before? See, unfair trials, 
false accusations, persistent opposition by the Jews, a judge who thinks they're not guilty but doesn't release them. Doesn't it just sound like the story of Jesus all over again? Except it's different this time, isn't it? For Jesus, God brought about his death to bring salvation to the world. But for Paul, God ensured that he was kept alive so that that message of salvation might spread to the ends of the earth. And so we see standing behind the trials of Paul, standing behind the whole time, is the sovereign God who has been working out his purpose of bringing salvation to the world. Well, let's just draw things together then with a couple of applications from this passage. Now let me begin with the, with the main one, the most important one, which lays the foundation for all the others. And that is the defensibility of the resurrection. The defensibility of the resurrection. Uh, is there any lawyers here today? Okay, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that it's, it's common legal practice uh, to look back to, to landmark cases in order to determine uh, the rulings on future ones. Is that right? This trial is a landmark case. It has huge significance for all people ever since. Here, the resurrection was put on trial and it was vindicated. Paul defended it. He showed that the resurrection of Jesus was, was rational, historical, long ago predicted, and he eyewitnessed it himself. Festus could call him mad, just like people continue to call Christians mad to this day. But, but Paul knew he was speaking the sober truth. See, the truth is that it, it is those who reject Christianity as irrational and without basis who are actually lacking any evidence to support their claim. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a reality that just cannot be denied. Paul was convicted of this truth. The resurrection of Jesus was at the very centre of who he was, of what he, how he was living his life. But let me ask, is it, is it the same for you? Is the resurrection of Jesus, is it, is it a concept that's still floating around in your head or has it, has it sunk home to you how important, how significant it is? 2,000 years ago, a man rose from the dead and he is Lord of this whole world and coming back to judge the living and the dead. There are all kinds of implications of that truth. We'll just look at four of them now. Firstly, conviction produces change. Conviction produces change. See, for Paul, the resurrection changed everything. He, he repented of his old life. He left it behind and he devoted the rest of his days for living, for living and serving Jesus. See, Paul realised if Jesus had been raised from the dead, then Jesus was Lord 
Jesus was his Lord and his life had to change. Well, what about you? Have you realised that that if Christ has been raised from the dead, then he needs to be your Lord. Your life needs to change. You need to leave behind your old life and continue to serve him and honour him as king for the rest of your days. Conviction must produce change. And secondly, conviction produces proclamation. Conviction produces proclamation. Did you notice how for Paul, after his meeting with the resurrected Jesus, he was constrained to preach him for the rest of his life? And it wasn't just Paul, it was the same for all the other apostles as well. He's a mark of all Christians as to whether the truth of the resurrection has hit home or not. If Christ is Lord, if he is the only way of salvation, then the world needs to know it. And so Paul proclaimed it. What about us? Thirdly, conviction produces boldness. Conviction produces boldness. Have you noticed again today the sheer boldness of Paul in proclaiming the gospel? Paul was so convinced that Christ was raised from the dead that he would not shrink back from proclaiming Christ. No matter how strong the opposition, whenever Paul was given any opportunity to preach Christ, he seized it with confidence and with courage. Sure, he must have been afraid. But whether it was his, his private interview with Felix or his trial before Festus or, or now before, before King Agrippa, Paul, he, he doesn't hold back from saying what he knows to be true. He's not overwhelmed by, by the pomp and grandeur or, or the distinguished guests before him. He, he doesn't care how, how great they are or how small they are. Paul is not after people's favour. He wants their salvation. So what about you? Are you so convinced that Christ has been raised from the dead that you do not shrink back from boldly proclaiming him? What are you like before your family and before your friends, before your colleagues, before your CEO? Are you more concerned for their favour or for their salvation? Boldness in proclamation comes from the firm conviction that Christ has been raised from the dead. And finally, conviction produces perseverance. Conviction produces Perseverance. How does Paul keep going after so many trials and accusations? Surely it would have been so easy for him to have given up by now, to just think it was, it was too hard, too much effort to just accept his faith and let it be. But he doesn't. He continues to proclaim Christ. Why is that? 
Again, the answer is the same. It is his conviction of the truth of the resurrection. Because Paul knows that because of the resurrection, his preaching is not in vain. He'd written that many years earlier to the Corinthians, but now he's living it out in practice. He said to the Corinthians in, in 1 Corinthians 15, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. Are you convicted of the truth of the gospel? Are you convicted of the truth of the resurrection? Because all the evidence only points in one direction. Christ was raised. Christ is Lord. And that means that your life, just like Paul's, exists to obey him and to proclaim him. Whatever happens. Shall we pray?